I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with the new hope that the debt ceiling standoff could be coming to an end. Reports this morning, Republicans and Democrats are closing in on a possible framework for a deal. Then on Wall Street, futures looking to kick off a new trading week in the green as an area of the market that does something for the first time since September of 2020. We are talking tech ahead. Then Twitter 2.0, the platform's new CEO. She breaks her silence over her new role and what she hopes to accomplish alongside Elon Musk. Plus a check on the U.S. housing picture asking the question, if we have hit peak mortgage rates, a lot of people want to know and why that may all be up to the Fed. And then later this morning, a check on this morning's global hotspots and the issues happening around the world that could impact the markets and your money. This morning, Turkey, Thailand, and the upcoming G7 summit in Japan. It is Monday, May the 15th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thanks for joining us on this Monday. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a mixed session for stocks on Friday that saw the down the S&P and the week in the red both of them on multi-week slides. This morning, however, we're seeing futures in the green. S&P, Dow, and NASDAQ all up about a third of a percent or more. Right now, the Dow would open up almost 100 points higher. Again, as we always say, it's very early. We're also checking the bond market this morning. We always start with the benchmark 10-year. So if you look at the benchmark 10-year, this is about 8, 9, 10 basis points lower than it was at the start of the week. Important to note, the two-year yield now back below 4%, something to watch. Um, also, as we close in on that June 1st deal, the so-called the X date when it comes to the debt limit, a check on the short end of the curve this morning. We're specifically looking at the one-month T-bill. When you look at the one-month T-bill, you see that yield very elevated at 5.749. It started this month at about 4%. You're seeing the massive swing to the upside right here. Again, started the month at 4%, now at 5.749. Hard to even believe when it comes to the one-month T-bill there. All right, we're also watching the energy market, seeing a lot of moves in the energy market on rates and recession fears and things like that. This morning, we're seeing WTI crude at 70 bucks a barrel, up fractionally. Brent crude at 74 and almost a quarter, also up fractionally. The big move, natural gas, 2% to the upside. And we're watching crypto. We've seen crypto have a really a kind of a tough time. It's coming off some tough weeks. This morning, however, up about 2% for both Bitcoin and Ether. However, both of them are above, or excuse me, below what have been key levels of 30,000 and 2,000. Something to watch. Okay, turning our attention around the world. Mostly green arrows overnight in Asia. The Hang Seng leading the region up one and three quarters of a percent. The Shanghai also gaining more than one percent. And also, we're looking at Europe. The trading day there just getting underway. Very similar to what we're seeing here. United States, uh, when it comes to futures, green across the board. The DAX up fractionally. The FTSE up about a quarter of a percent. The CAC, the best performer, up a third of a percent. We are paying particular attention to Turkey this morning. Is that country's presidential election likely heads to a runoff that's going to happen later this month? Watching that country's major equity index down sharply, seeing us down about 3%. And the Turkish lira also making a sharp move higher. We're going to have much more on that story and also the inflation in Turkey coming up. All right, now let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Savannah now is here with those. Savannah, good morning. Hey, Frank, good Monday morning to you. President Biden, House Speaker McCarthy, and other top congressional leaders planning to resume their face-to-face talks on a possible budget deal tomorrow. Now, reports this morning that negotiations are moving along with sources telling the Financial Times that issues on the table in those talks are narrowing. Now, this after President Biden told reporters yesterday he's hopeful a deal will get done. 
Twitter's new CEO breaking her silence over the weekend about the prospects of her new position and working with Elon Musk. Now, in a series of tweets, that's her first since accepting the job, Linda Yaccarino said she is committed to the development of the social media company with user feedback being, quote, vital to that future. Yaccarino adds she's long been inspired by Musk's vision for the future, and she is excited to bring that vision to Twitter. And Tiger Global Management is reportedly looking to offload hundreds of millions of dollars worth of private companies into the secondary market. Now, the move comes after the $51 billion investment firm marked down its venture portfolio by about 33% last year or $23 billion. Tiger has invested in hundreds of VC-backed companies, including ByteDance and Discord, Frank. Yeah, certainly something to watch. Those have been, you know, kind of disruptive technologies, but a repricing of everything from stocks to bonds to private companies happening right now. Silvana, great to see you. We'll see you later on the show. All right. Turn our attention back to the broader markets and a potential catalyst for the stock market rally or possibly rallying in coming weeks. Bank of America's most recent monthly survey finding fund managers currently have the lowest exposure to stocks relative to bonds since 2009. Of course, that's the Great Recession. They pulled about $334 billion net from stocks over the past 12 months, driving total assets and money markets to a record $5.3 trillion. Turmoil in the banking sector, along with lingering worries about inflation and a potential recession, really dragging on investor confidence. But many say this could push markets to the upside, with Wall Street often adopting a contrarian view to extreme sentiment in either direction. Let's talk much more about this with Jay Hatfield, InfraCap founder and chief investment officer. Jay, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me on. All right. So we just kind of talked about some of the things going on right now. Um, inflation, the banking crisis, possible recession. But some people, we're going to call them contrarians for this conversation, say that could also lead to a rally. So where are you at? Contrarian, consensus. What's your S&P price target? What's your outlook? We're definitely contrarian. Since the beginning of the year, we established a 4,500 uh, price target for the S&P. That's 19 times 2024 earnings. And what we do think is going to be true is when we hit July, uh, investors will start to be focused on 24. And even more importantly, the inflation data, mostly because of arithmetic, but we're forecasting that uh, CPI headline goes to 3.5 and PPI to only 0.9. And that's important because it's leading. Um, and that's not a heroic uh, estimate on our part. It's just that we're rolling off two months of over 1% per month last year. So we think even the Federal Reserve will start to recognize that uh, inflation's declining and that'll set us up for a summer rally. All right, so you're saying a summer rally. I wanna be clear, you said your S&P outlook's 4,500? Correct, yes. All right, so about an 8% upside from here. Um, I also wanna talk to- I'd say there's more risk to the upside at this point, you know, because of AI and the potential tech boom. Yeah, I mean, AI is going to obviously potentially have a big influence on a lot of things, potentially deflationary. Maybe that speaks to your PPI estimate as well. Um, But I do want to switch gears just for a bit. When it comes to bonds, you're watching the bond market and you believe that the $52 trillion um, in assets that global pension funds are holding, that's going to be a big influence to the bond market. Explain the theory and why that, which is a pretty stable set of assets, is going to have a big influence on the bond market. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of investors don't recognize that $32 trillion of that is actually in the United States. Most of our pension funds are quite well funded. We always focus on the ones that aren't, like in Illinois, but most of them are well funded. 
And they're also under allocated to bonds. They're only 28% allocated to bonds. That's all bonds. So if treasuries rise like they have, they start to become um, pretty close or at least a good percentage of the benchmark. So it makes sense for those uh, pension funds to reallocate. So we think there's a deep bid for bonds that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. We didn't have this uh, explosion and retirement and the requirement to set aside funds. So where are those buys coming from? The short end, the long end? How does that influence the benchmark? Well, those, the great thing about those investors is they're going to want to be ultra long term. So they're going to be buying 30 year because they have very long term obligations. And so that's why we think the 30 year was capped. I mean, now it's a little bit obvious because the economy is slowing. But even at the beginning of the year, okay. we thought the 30 year was capped around 4% because most pension funds are at seven. So four is you know, a really okay. good percentage relative to that. And it's, of course, risk-free if you're a dollar payer. All right, Jay, one last question. Just quick answer, if you can. What are you doing when it comes to portfolio protection? We mentioned all the risk, inflation, possible recession, et cetera. What we do is uh, we buy um, income securities, so large-cap dividend stocks like we have in ICAP. It's also worth mentioning that MLPs are undervalued. There's a $19 billion merger, really acquisition by One Oak of Magellan. So we think a lot of the old economy assets are undervalued, particularly ones that have substantial yields like MLPs and pipelines. All right, Jay Hatfield, we got to leave the conversation there. Thank you very much for being here. All right, we got a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors just have to know today. But first, why U.S. homebuyers may want to just wait just a beat before locking in that next 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, or at least have the word refi somewhere on the calendar. Plus, tensions rising in Turkey as that country's president faces his greatest threat to power since taking the top job about 20 years ago. We have a live report from Istanbul coming up. And then later, tracking tech's historic run and what Apple just did for the very first time since 2020. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Busy week for the housing sector on tap with several pieces of data due out That includes existing home sales on Thursday. Those numbers coming as we move towards the end of the key spring home buying season. Our Diana Olick has more on why the usually busy time for the sector is looking a bit different this year. This has been an unusual spring market, to say the least. And what better place to start than home prices, which have been the most unusual. After jumping over 40 percent nationally in the first two years of the pandemic, they began cooling off last summer due to sharply higher mortgage rates. They actually fell at the fastest pace on record into the fall, but now they appear to be rising yet again. Why? Roller coaster mortgage rates. The average on the 30-year fixed hit more than a dozen record lows in the first two years of the pandemic, and then more than doubled in just the first six months of last year before peaking last October. In January, however, it fell back hard, and that brought buyers out, heating up demand. But supply is still critically low. New listings were down 21% in April year over year. Potential sellers just don't want to give up their likely record low rates, so prices turned higher, especially in markets like Las Vegas, where they fell the hardest. Now, the price swings have had an impact on homeowner wealth. After two years of gaining record home equity, some of that melted away. The average mortgage holder has $185,000 in tappable equity. That's leaving 20% equity in the home. It's down from more than $210,000 early last year, but still 65000 or 56% above the average pre-pandemic. 
Negative equity is still historically very low, with only 1.1 percent of mortgage holders underwater in March. All of that, according to Black Knight. Frank? All right. Our, very, our big thanks to our Diana Olick for that. For more on the big week for housing and where the sector stands right now, let's bring in Logan Motoshami, lead analyst at Housing Wire. Logan, great to see you. Good to be here. All right. So Diana just kind of laid it out for us. So give us a sense. How did this spring buying season compare to last year and other years? Obviously, just last year, we saw it really fueled by the pandemic and lower rates. You know, last year around this time, mortgage rates started to spike and we uh, saw it really negatively impact the purchase application data. So far this year, year to date, we have more positive purchase application data than negative. So I would say it's a mild positive year so far. But the real story is inventory. Uh, Total active listings are still near all time lows. New listings are trending at all time lows. It took the longest time ever recorded in history to find the seasonal bottom and spring inventory looks like the walking dead, a zombie slowly walking somewhere. So we're quite not back to anywhere normal yet on that front. Okay, so straighten this out for me. So you say we're, we're near historic lows when it comes to inventory, but according to your data, we saw inventory rise last week about 34% over what it was last year. So what does that mean just on layman's terms for people who are buying and who are selling? Total active listings historically is between two to two and a half million if you want to use the NAR, NAR data. We're still under a million. So the week to week data has uh, increased and we're higher than last year, but we're nowhere normal. So if new listings data is trending at all time lows and, you know, we have about less than uh, six weeks left before seasonality kicks in there. There's not a lot of choices. So the people that are buying homes in some markets, when you don't have that uh, uh, active listings up, you start to getting bidding wars. And then there's other parts like the West Coast where you have a little bit more inventory than the East Coast. So it's one of those dysfunctional housing markets where mortgage rates have fallen from the peak. And it's given some people a little bit more buying power. But if you look at home sales, they're still trending at you know 10-year lows right now. So it's it's one of those awkward housing markets that the active listings being so low might make it seem a little bit stronger than it uh, normally is. All right. So look, you just said something that caught my ear. You said mortgage rates are off the peak. So here's the big question. Have we hit peak mortgage rates or do they have more room to go? A lot of people think the Fed's going to pause. How big of an impact is that going to have on the mortgage rates? I believe mortgage rates peaked last year, but I'm a 10-year yield guy. So I, I just don't see how the 10-year yield gets above four and a quarter when the economy is slowing down. So Mortgage rates, in theory, should be one to one and a quarter percent lower than they are today. But the mortgage market is extremely stressed. So if that changed and the mortgage market started to price itself normally, we could see mortgage rates in the low fives. But so far, there's nothing to indicate that the mortgage market itself is going to be functioning in any kind of normal fashion that we've been used to uh, before 2022. All right. So the big question. So if you're if you're looking at buying a property right now, should you wait because your outlook is they're going to fall. And like, how long should you wait? Traditionally, people don't wait. You know, it's the spring season. Right. This is the time where they start to uh, buy homes and move. But, uh, it, you know, if the economy gets weaker, I, for me, it's if jobless claims start to really pick up, uh, especially if they get over 323000 on a four-week moving average, mortgage rates should get better. But I, I, I don't know how much better it can get. Uh, when the mortgage uh, mortgage market itself, the spreads are very bad. So you might not get too much relief uh, uh, until the labor market breaks. All right, we have to leave the conversation there. Logan, great to see you. Great to have you on as always. It's good to be here. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, a look at this week's global hotspots. We are watching developments that could move the needle for the markets and for your money, including the G7 set to take a hard line on China. Our Martin Soong is in Japan. Martin? 
That's right, Frank. The G7 working to fight back against what's being termed China's economic coercion, including plans to ban exports to China and restrict foreign direct investments. The latest when we come right back, when Worldwide Exchange comes back right after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for a look at some of the major hot spots around the world that could potentially have huge implications for the global economy and for your investments. First off, we're looking at Turkey, where the presidential election appears to be heading towards a runoff. President Erdogan, who's ruled the country with a tight grip for 20 years, is leading his main challenger, but is short of the votes needed for an outright win and one that could push Turkey even further to the right. Next up is Thailand, where opposition parties won big in weekend elections, Voters showing they wanted change after a decade under a former general who took power in a coup. The next challenge will be forming a new government. Finally, G7 leaders are set to issue a statement warning about China's use of economic leverage abroad. According to Reuters, that warning will come when leaders meet this weekend, citing a U.S. official familiar with those discussions. We've got these stories covered. Our Martin Soong is in Japan ahead of that G7 summit. Dan Murphy following the Turkish elections in Istanbul. Let's start with Martin. Good morning. Uh, uh, good morning there. Yeah, you're right. The G7 is working to try and fight back or counter what's being termed China's economic coercion. And what do we mean by that? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who is here at the finance leaders meeting of the G7, which just wrapped up over the weekend behind me, used as examples uh, what China's done to Lithuania and also to Australia. If you remember back about three years ago, after Australia initiated a probe, international probe, into the origins of the coronavirus, well, right after that, China hit back by banning imports of Australian beef, barley, wine, and believe it or not, lobsters as well. So what is the G7 doing? We understand the plans are afoot to try and get a consensus around a ban on exports to China, as well as uh, a move to try and restrict or limit ex uh, foreign direct investment into China. On the first point, banning exports to China, the problem there is this is a U.S.-led initiative, yes, and this is something the president's probably going to be talking a little bit more about come the summit on Friday over in Hiroshima. But uh, there is a lack of consensus, as we understand right now, because the EU, neither the EU nor Japan are on board with this idea. So that's going to be a bit of work uh, still to do there. As far as FDI uh, goes, uh, we still don't know yet, although the U.S. has come out and said in the final statement, excuse me, the G7 has come out to say in the final statement, they are going to try and limit foreign direct investment into countries where their sovereignty is at stake or held hostage. And that is a direct reference to China. Frank, back to you. All right, our Martin Soong, thank you very much. Now over to Dan Murphy in Istanbul with the latest on the Turkish elections this weekend and what another Erdogan mean, Erdogan win could mean for that country and its place in the global community. Well, Frank, you really do get the sense that all of this comes down to the equity market reaction today. At the open, we saw Turkish stocks slumping 6%, triggering a circuit breaker. And in the currency markets, well, the lira is also lingering at a two-month low. So what's happened here? Investors clearly surprised at the outcome of last night's vote, where no single candidate was able to achieve the 50% required to claim victory here. That's bad news for President Erdogan and his main challenger opponent here. So what are we going to see? This vote is now going into an unprecedented second round election runoff on the 28th of May, the results of which we are likely to see as soon as the 1st of June. The president was addressing his supporters in the capital, Ankara, early this morning. He says 
he's ready to lead. Listen in. If our nation has made its choice in favour of the second round of the election, then that is also welcome. We believe that we will finish this round with over 50% of the vote. Analysts say that Erdogan could do pretty well in the second round of this vote. That is bad news for his challenger and bad news for those investors who are hoping for some kind of a return to normalcy when it comes to Turkey's economic, foreign and monetary policy. It's back over to you. All right, this is our Dan Murphy in Istanbul. Dan, thank you very much. All right, uncertainty over the power struggle in Turkey wreaking havoc on that country's capital markets. This morning, watching its major equity index move sharply lower. Let's discuss Turkey and the investment implications more in depth now and bring in Stephen Schoenfeld, CEO of Market Vector Indexes. Stephen, great to have you here. Good morning, Frank. So I'm sure you're watching what's going on in Turkey with the election. So what is this very close election and the runoff that's scheduled for later this month? What does it mean politically and for the capital markets in Turkey and globally? So politically, it's a, a very big disappointment for the opposition. Um, this was their best chance, really, in over a decade to win control. And many polls uh, expected them to win in the first round. Uh, uh, Erdogan really had more support in the heartland than, than many observers uh, expected. And the dropout of a leading opposition candidate just before the election did not help uh, the opposition. Um, I think Erdogan has the edge in the runoff, but it's going to be very volatile in the next two weeks as we move toward that runoff election on May 28th. All right. So Turkey's at kind of a nexus point politically and, and geographically when it comes. It's kind of a meeting point between Europe and Asia. Also has close ties to Russia, even though it is a NATO country. Um, I want to get back to the economic implications of everything we're looking at. We're seeing the Turkish lira at historic lows compared to the dollar. Also inflation spiking there about 40 percent, I believe. What does that potentially mean for the global economy if the opposition wins? There's thoughts that they would uh, have their central bank raise rates. Does that does that have an echo effect when it comes to the United States and the rest of the global economy? I don't think uh, Turkey Turkey is a very large economy, about a uh, one trillion U.S. dollar GDP, uh, 85 million population. And yet uh, any interest rate moves in Turkey are, are completely separate, not only from the U.S. and Europe, but even most emerging markets. Erdogan and his uh, rotating crew of uh, financial advisors and central bank governors have pursued incredibly unorthodox policies. As bad as 40 percent inflation sounds, it was as high as 80 or 90 percent in the fall. And then he started uh, making adjustments before the election. Um, He doesn't have uh, uh, an inclination to change this very unorthodox policy. So you'll see real distortions in the economy. Uh, And you'll also see, unfortunately, if he wins, uh, you will see a continued pivoting and playing uh, playing the U.S. and Russia off of each other. A lot of the support that Erdogan got in the last six months have been from certain Gulf countries and from Russia. So if he continues to play the U.S. and Russia against each other, does that have any impacts that investors should be especially mindful of? Um, We're seeing Russia and China get closer and closer. And as our Martin Soong highlighted, the G7 planning to issue a warning about their use of economic leverage in other other countries. Excuse me. So if Erdogan uh, wins the next term, I think he'll be uh, continue to be disruptive. He will most even though Turkey is a member of NATO, he will most likely not cooperate with um, uh, Western sanctions against Russia uh, because Russian economic uh, relations have been um, a really a lifeline 
for Erdogan. Uh, the hope, if the opposition had won, would be a return to orthodoxy and a return to more liberal uh, pro, pro-West foreign policy. Uh, right now, that seems much less likely, which is why you have the local market down. It was down, as, as um, your colleague said, more than 6%. It's still down about 3%. Um, and the outlook looks quite weak for the Turkish lira. Uh, this, unfortunately, means more bad news for Turkey uh, but I do think it can be isolated. It's not going to dramatically affect global markets. All right. I think it's kind of nice to take one thing off Wall Street's world of worry there. Stephen, yeah. thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate the insight. All right. Straight My ahead pleasure. here on Worldwide Exchange. How about some activism with the side of crinkle cut fries as Shake Shack prepares for a new boardroom battle? Worldwide Exchange will be right back after this. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. A debt deal taking shape. Lawmakers reportedly moving forward on a potential agreement as President Biden and Speaker McCarthy prepare to meet this week. Plus, big tech continue to power the markets higher as an increasing number of investors get back on the growth trade train. We're going to dive into whether the sector has reached highs or if there is more upside. And it's Merger Monday with two multi-billion dollar deals in the mining and energy spaces. Those names ahead on this Monday, May the 15th, right here on Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thanks for starting your morning with us. Let's pick up a half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. As we mentioned, they're in the green this morning. The Dow actually moving up very slightly this morning. Um, futures now uh, 100 points higher. Before, it was like in the 90s. We're also seeing the S&P and the NASDAQ fractionally higher as well. So, Futures showing some optimism. This is the tech trade continues to be front and center with the Nasdaq, the only major index to notch a gain last week. This morning, we're watching Apple ahead of the opening bell. It is the single company that has a market cap that is larger than the entire Russell 2000 small cap index. This is the second time it has surpassed the Russell since September 1st of 2020. We're showing it to you on the graph right there. We're going to talk much more about this trend later on and really hone in on another company that's seen a pretty historic rally this year in just a moment. But now we're turning our attention to the bond market. We begin always with the 10-year benchmark at 3.48, about 8, 9, 10 basis points lower than it started the month. The real news here, and this is actually moving to the upside this morning as we're talking and doing the show, the two-year note above that 4% yield. Before, it was just fractionally lower, but kind of meaningful when it goes above 4%. We also continue to watch the short end of the curve. And this is really where we're seeing the movement, especially when it comes to the one month. Now, the one month, just in the beginning of the month, or excuse me, a month ago, that yield was about 4%. We're seeing it climb now to 5.74. Big move to the upside there. We continue to watch those moves on the short end of the bond curve. All right, we also want to look at energy, specifically oil, as we do every single morning. We're seeing WTI still just above 70 bucks a barrel, now at about 70 and a quarter, up fraction this morning, up about a third of a percent. Brent crude, a very similar story, 74.35, basically up about a quarter of a percent. The big move, though, natural gas up over 2% this morning. All right, time now for a check of your morning's top stories, including we got a merger Monday taking shape. Our Savannah Hanau is back with those details. Savannah. Hey, Frank. Well, two deals to tell you about this morning. First, gold giant Newmont sealing its $19.2 billion deal to buy Australian rival Newcrest Mining. The agreement, which will require regulatory approval, is the gold mining sector's largest deal to date, surpassing Newmont's purchase of rival Gold Corp in 2019. Now, 
in the energy space. Pipeline operator One Oak agreeing to buy smaller rival Medellin Midstream partners for nearly $19 billion. Now, the merger, which still needs regulatory and investor approval, would form one of the biggest U.S. companies involved in transporting and storing energy. European Union regulators are reportedly set to sign off on Microsoft's $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard as early as today. The anticipated move comes just weeks after the U.K.'s watchdog moved to block the record-breaking gaming merger. Microsoft is appealing that ruling. And Shake Shack finding itself the apparent focus of a possible proxy battle. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, Engaged Capital is looking to secure three board seats at the burger chain. The journal says that Engaged has a roughly 6.6% stake in Shake Shack, and the two sides have been in talks for six months on Engaged proposals for new directors and other changes to help boost Shake Shack's stock price, Frank. We're seeing a lot of activism this year. Seeing a lot of activism yeah. in different spaces. Our Savannah Hanau, thank you very much. All right, turning our attention to the debt ceiling debate, or excuse me, the debt ceiling negotiations. President Biden, House Speaker McCarthy, and other top congressional leaders planning to resume their face-to-face talks on a possible budget deal tomorrow. Reports this morning that negotiations are moving along, with sources telling the Financial Times that issues on the table in those talks, they're narrowing right now. This after President Biden told reporters just yesterday he's very hopeful a deal will get done. I think there's a desire on their part as well as ours to reach agreement. I think we'll be able to do it. They have gone down. My hope is they'll continue to go down. But we have more, a lot more work to do. And we need some more help from the Congress as well in terms of funding and legislative changes. And with just over two weeks to go before the June 1st X date, the clock is winding down. Joining me now, Stephen Myro, managing partner at Beacon Policy Advisors. Stephen, great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Frank. All right, so we have a hopeful President Biden. We're also getting what I think is kind of a rare consensus down in Washington, D.C. The consensus now, after, you know, some back and forth, that the so-called X date, it won't come before June 1st and probably weeks later. Does that change the temperature of these talks tomorrow at all? Frank, they need a deadline to force action. That's always the case in Washington. So as we get closer to the deadline, we think that will narrow the two sides. However, our current base cases, there probably isn't enough time to get a full deal done right now. So it's likely we could see a short-term punt until later this year. All right. Talk to me about the potential areas where we could see agreement. Um, there's a representative that House Speaker McCarthy has kind of had uh, capped in the ship, if you will. Um, the areas are spending caps, permitting reform, rescinding unspent COVID-19 aid and work requirements. So give us a sense. Is there one of these that's more contentious than the other? Is there one that a deal could likely be reached on maybe even tomorrow? So I don't think anything's done until everything's done. That's a usual phrase in Washington. But when it, the work requirements is probably the most contentious of those, the unspent COVID money is the easy layup on spending caps and permitting reform. I think in theory, there's uh, room for agreement. The problem is always the devil's in the details on spending caps in particular. Right now, we're hearing that the Biden administration would be willing to consider some form of two-year deal, but the Republicans are looking for 
some much longer term, like a 10-year deal. So it's going to take them to narrow it down. All right, let's go to one more D.C. phrase. Politics makes strange bedfellows. Is there a deal that's a win-win for Biden and McCarthy and then could just kind of sew all this up where everybody can move ahead in a positive way? And that's exactly it, Frank, right? You know, I always say that process trumps substance in, in Washington. So the question is, it's not just what the deal is, but the way they go about getting it, because it's, it doesn't matter what the deal is. Both Biden and McCarthy want to keep their jobs. And the question is, how do they sell a win to their respective bases? And particularly on McCarthy's side, since Biden has to wait until the ballot box in 24 to find out whether or not he keeps his job. But McCarthy's always now at the whim of uh, of his conference that could do what's known as a motion to vacate to get rid of him. The question is, he's never going to get the Freedom Caucus, the far right of this conference, to back whatever compromise deal he reaches. The question is, can he keep that opposition to just grumbling or do they actually try to take him down? That's what he. A lot to watch here. Stephen Myro, thank you so much for your insight and your time. We appreciate you being here. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, big techs, big bounce back. Where our next guest says valuations for some of the sector's biggest names look favorable, even as their shares continue to rebound. We're going to tell you the names high on his list when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. All right. Welcome back to WEX. Time now for your morning call sheet, where we check on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms that you know and stocks that you likely own. We begin with A.B. Bernstein upgrading Tapestry's rating from market perform to outperform, also raising its price target to $55. It says expected short-term weakness is played out, and it likes the long-term story and the attractive valuation of Tapestry. We're looking at those shares. They're up 2% in the pre-market. Another upgrade, this time Raymond James lifting Charles Schwab's rating from market perform to outperform. It cites recent data indicating client cash sorting is tapering, which should support the balance sheet and net interest margin stabilization in the second half. Looking at shares of Schwab, also up 2% this morning. Might as well make it a hat trick. Deutsche Bank upgrading DuPont's rating from hold to buy and raising its price target from 70 bucks to 80 bucks a share. It cites meetings with management and the conclusion of DuPont-Dow merger as well as legal matters now wrapping themselves up. All right, sticking with stocks this morning, Omega Cap Tech's impressive run so far this year, leading the charge. We're talking about Meta, up more than 90% as CEO Mark Zuckerberg's pledge for a year of efficiency. It really looks to be paying off, seeing similar gains across the space. We're talking about NVIDIA, up more than 90%. Tesla, up more than 35%. Apple, up more than 30%. Alphabet, also up more than 30%. But even with these gains, there are still maybe just a little bit more room to run, at least for some of these names. Tesla is off 46 percent from its recent 52-week high. Amazon, 24 percent off. Netflix and Alphabet also off by 10 percent and 3 percent, respectively. And, and if the Fed is indeed ready to hit the pause button, is there anything left holding these stocks back? Big question here. Joining me to discuss, James Kakmak, Clockwise Capital Partner. So, James, I'm going to throw that question on your lap. Is there anything holding these mega cap tech stocks back? Do they have more room to run? How big of a factor is valuation? I think they do. I think we're in a little bit of a no man's land for the next couple of months because a lot of these have reached their full valuation, at least on a 2023 uh, earnings basis. But once we kind of start looking into 2024, you know, we think that the valuations do still extremely uh, look extremely compelling, far below 
uh, their historical peaks. And uh, so we do think there is room to run because not only should the growth curves uh, continue to prove uh, more resilient than expected, but the earnings picture through the cost cutting uh, should um, trend steeper as well. Okay, so let's go back to the Fed for a second. Consensus is that we're going to see a pause in the next meeting. How meaningful Mm -hmm. is the pause? Um, These stocks are obviously very interest rate sensitive. Is the the rally in your mind dependent on just a pause or are you also pricing in a cut? I think I think the Fed um, has an outsized role in this. I I think I think the pause, number one, is essential um, that that they maintain that. And now the market is pricing in rate cuts toward the end of the year. No, I mean, and you, I think that, you and your theory. Um, well, in my theory, I, I do think that we'll likely have to see a cut um, sometime in the second half of the year to keep the momentum going. I think if uh, because as long as if interest rates continue to remain at the level that they are, I think fears around the financial uh, sector could weigh on the entire uh, on the entire market. So it is something that we are watching closely. All right. Let's talk about some of these big gainers, including Meta. You have a pretty bullish price target with a big upside for a company that's pretty much doubled so far this year. Sure. I mean, the way we look at it is, you know, by or this year, they should do something around $12 in earnings. When you look at 2024, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $16. And, you know, we think a 20 multiple is not too um, uh, difficult, you know, to achieve uh, for the 2024 earnings. You know, 20 times 16, you're looking at a $320 stock. All right. What about some of the other big winners so far this year? We're talking NVIDIA, for example, um, getting a big boost from this whole AI craze. Can this rally continue? Um, can the hype and excitement around AI continue? I think so. Yes. I mean, I mean, according to, you know, Satya Nadella, this is the most profound uh, development he's seen in technology in his career. And, um, you know, we, we probably echo that. I mean, the, the productivity gains that you can see from AI are astounding. I mean, for example, just look at what Airbnb was saying about it. They think that AI can boost employee productivity by 30%. You don't see that kind of step function gains in productivity since the assembly line. You know, so, so <laughs> it, it's a big deal. <laughs> since the assembly, that's a pretty bold statement. James Chalkmock, I like the way you do things. Thank you very much for being here. Appreciate your insight. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today. Plus, despite all the worry in the market, there is a key technical signal that just might be pointing to pointing towards a bull market rally. We're going to tell you what that is. And CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage throughout the month of May. We are sharing stories of influential AIPI business leaders as we head to break. Here is Mendocino Farms co-founder Ellen Chen. I'm very proud to be Taiwanese American. Um, but it's been hard growing up in America. I faced a lot of challenges with racism, sexism, people wanting to put me in that Asian stereotypical box. But I've embraced these adversities because it's made me a stronger and more resilient person. We can be so much more than doctors, lawyers, and engineers, but we can also be creative artists, athletes, CEOs and entrepreneurs like myself. I want my kids and the kids of the next generation to understand that they belong in this country and that they're not just Asians living in America, but they're Americans living in America. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you need to know before the opening bell. We begin with Turkey's presidential election. It appears to be heading towards a runoff. President Erdogan, who's ruled the country with a tight grip for 20 years, 
is leading his main challenger, but is short of the votes needed for an outright win. Twitter's new CEO breaking her silence over the weekend about joining the social platform. In a series of tweets, Linda Yaccarino said she is committed to the development of the company with user feedback being, quote, vital to that future. Vice Media officially filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The move is part of a plan to engineer a sale to a group of lenders, including the company's biggest creditor, Fortress Investor Group. And Amazon is looking to make deliveries faster and less expensive by revamping its massive logistics network. Company executives telling CNBC part of that plan involves focusing on using AI to speed up deliveries by minimizing the distance between products and customers. Speaking with AI, Google is reportedly launching tools to identify artificially created and misleading images. According to Bloomberg, AI-generated content will be labeled as such in a bid to reduce the potential spread of misinformation. And Tiger Global Management is reportedly looking to offload hundreds of millions of dollars worth of private companies into the secondary market. The move comes after the $51 billion investment firm marked down its venture portfolio by about 33% last year, or $23 billion. All right, turning our attention now back over the markets as investors gear up to kick off a new trading week. Looking at futures right now, solidly in the green. The Dow looks like it would open up about 100 points higher right now. Again, it is early. Your next guest says, while the S&P can't seem to break past the 4,200 mark, there are signals suggesting a positive trend for a bull market rally. Malcolm Etheridge is the executive vice president at CIC Wealth and a CNBC contributor. Malcolm, always great to see you. Morning, Frank. Good to see you, man. All right. So a lot of people are talking about the S&P being pretty much range bound. Right now, it's about 4150. What happens if we get those extra 50 points and break past 4200 in your mind? Well, we would need to sustain it. Uh, that level above 4,200, right? It's what all of the technicians have been waiting to see for quite some time and kind of hanging their hats on as far as the signal to tell us that we're on our way uh, up and to the right. But I think it's worth pointing out the fact that we're continuing to see, uh, we're continuing to put in higher lows. And that matters in the sense that the range is tightening uh, around that 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 level. We're at about 4,100 right now is where we continue to be uh, persistent. So while we can't seem to break through the 4,200 level, we're definitely uh, making making our way upward as far as the trend is concerned. And so if you just look at the last trade, uh, last six trading weeks, for example, uh, we haven't really seen the week in uh, up or down by more than 1% in either direction. Uh, if you just look at last Friday's close, for example, we were fractionally lower, but it was only a small fraction. And, and this week, we're looking at what uh, positive uh, futures already telling us that Monday is going to start off on a pretty good note. Yeah, and that's even with the S&P coming off a two-week losing streak. So every day we ask Wall Street's brightest mind to share the word that they believe will describe the trading day ahead. Malcolm Etheridge, what is your WEX word of the day? Yeah, so the word for me today is optimistic. I'm optimistic that we're going to get a debt ceiling uh, uh, lift. I think that that Democrats do prevail in this case. And I think that that's going to be a very positive signal to the markets that's been kind of holding its breath. Uh, you know, knowing that we can't possibly default on our debt, but there's a difference between knowing and knowing, right? And so we just want to make sure that we get past this uh, last little threshold. And then we also, I'm optimistic also that we'll get a pause uh, out of the Fed once we get all of the economic data that's going to come out of uh, May. And so I think those two events occurring around the same time are going to be a very positive sign for markets and sort of that last little thing that bulls have been waiting on to be able to come in and buy this market back up. 
So, Malcolm, love the optimism, love the Wex word of the day. But what have you seen that's given you so much confidence we're going to see a pause? Job market very strong, according to the latest jobs report. And CPI, it was below estimates, but it's still well above 2%. So I'm not necessarily uh, uh, say, trying to use the G word, right, guaranteeing that we're going to see a pause. I know about 95 percent of consensus uh, from analysts seems to be baking it in. And also uh, the, the fixed income market seems to be baking in a pause. But I do think that uh, one of the reasons we can kind of hang our hat on it is that uh, historically the terminal rate needs to be above CPI before the Fed is willing to pause. And we just got that. And so I think that history being our guide, we can look at that metric and say that okay. this could be the, the spot where the Fed decides at least to hit the pause button and just kind of let the data speak for a few months. All right, Mark, well, we're almost out of time, but I ask you one last question. Just one idea when it comes to portfolio protection. What do you have in your clients do? As far as portfolio protection is concerned, I think you're more in danger of missing uh, a potential rally in, in tech. And so I think maybe buying the cues here and hanging on for a second more broadly to catch the, the, the tech right. wave, because that's where all of the money seems to Triple be going. Cues. All right, we got to leave it there, Mal. I'm sorry to cut you off. We're playing the music. Great to see you as always. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got Squawk Box coming up next. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.